Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of people finding their fertile ground through their own grit and resilient stories. I'm your host, Marie Gettle Martin, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Do you struggle to put words to the screen? Is writing the very last thing you want to do in your day? My mission is to make communications painless for my clients. I can turn a piece of lackluster, jargon-filled, or technical prose into clear, dynamic narrative. I help my clients discover how to tell their stories or solve their communications challenges. Look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. I'd love to give you a free 30-minute consult. Each week, I alternate this Finding Fertile Ground podcast with my other podcast, Companies That Care, which is about business leaders making a difference in the world. On both of my podcasts, I strive to highlight voices from historically excluded populations, the people who don't always get a platform. Check out my website for more details. This week, I interview Paula Dunn, who was born with a bilateral cleft lip and palate. Paula is my first Australian guest and my first guest with a cleft lip and palate like me. Paula has found her fertile ground by applying what she learned in her life by working with teenage girls as a resilient expert, author, and cognitive scientist. She helps them create confidence to conquer life. Let's meet Paula and hear her story. Hello, Paula. Thank you for joining the Fighting for the Ground podcast. It's great to be on your show, Marie. G'day from Down Under. Yes, it's so wonderful to, to have my first Australian on the podcast. And you and I met in the, what is it called? Our cleft group on Facebook. I can't remember the name of the group. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird name. I don't know. But yeah, anyway, like a lot cleft, of people hang out there. Like cleft affected adults or something like that. Yeah, something but, like that, yes. Yeah. So it's a Facebook group for people who've had cleft lips and palates. And before we started recording, Paul and I were talking about how when we were growing up, we didn't really know anybody else who had a cleft lip and palate. So let's talk about your life a little bit. Can you tell us about your childhood, where you grew up and what your childhood and family was like? Yeah. Okay. So um, I was born in 1976. So I'm a Gen Xer and I was born in a little town, not so little anymore, but called Wollongong. And it's about 75 kilometers south of Sydney. I was the youngest of four. I was a change of life baby, as I was told. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I came a little late in life to my parents. My mum had me when she was 43. And I think my father was about 47. Yeah. So I came as a little kinder surprise. Oh, and but, Yeah. I have one of those. <laughs> I was 41, but that's uh, so awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. So I think they saved the best for last, but you know, I'm being, I'm being biased here, but yeah, look, uh, back in those days, um, they didn't really have ultrasounds or anything. So uh, I was also a breech baby. So mum went in and had a cesarean and out I popped and with a bilateral cleft lip and palate as well. So from what I was told, yeah, obviously my parents were upset and, and they cried and all of that. But she she keeps telling me the story that the the doctor and the nurses were really positive and they were saying, oh, but she's perfect, you know, like Aww. the shape, the the measurements, the head, the feet, the this or that, you know, like they were saying everything was like, yeah, she's perfect. And I think one of the doctors said, if you don't want her, I'll take her home, <laughs> like that. And my mum went, no way. <laughs> so. So that was the story she told me <laughs> oh. about the surprise, yeah. And do they know why you had a clap out? Like for my case, my mom had German measles, but did yeah. They have, yeah, do they have an explanation? No, not really. Um, I think a lot of the misconceptions are, oh, because 
they were old. Uh-huh. Um, that could have been that. Mum thought, she thought she was going through menopause, but then when she went to the doctor, so I don't know whether they may have given her some morning sickness pills. I'm mm. not really sure. Mm-hmm. It was never really disclosed. There was no one in my family with this condition either, as much as people can think back. I guess recent sort of tests for me now as an adult, I've had, you know, tried to get some genetic testing done to see if, if I had some form of syndrome or something, or but they've not been able to pinpoint anything. So I don't know. It's hard to say for me. Unfortunately, I don't have a d- definitive answer mm-hmm. on that one. Mm-hmm. Right. And what was your childhood like? What are some of your first childhood memories? I guess I was a, I was a very um, outspoken child. I, <laughs> yeah. Apparently, my mum used to say that she'd um, have me in the pram and we'd be stop at, stopped at the traffic lights and waiting to cross the street. And apparently, I'd turn to somebody and go, oh, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? Oh. <laughs> and, <laughs> and talk to random strangers like that. (laughs) So they were some of the memories. I also used to like climbing trees and climbing up the antenna and getting onto the roof of the house and and then they'd have to call the uh, fire brigade to get me down and stuff like that. Yeah, it sounds like you're pretty (laughs) confident and outgoing. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, so being, um, I guess, the youngest of four, my siblings were all baby boomers, so they were a lot older than me. The, I guess the closest in age was about about, about a 14-year gap. So oh. that, yeah, so I was basically the baby. Mm-hmm. So I had to play by myself a lot and, yeah, get creative. <laughs> I'll bet. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Mm. So tell us about growing up with a bilateral minus, I don't know what it's called, unilateral? I don't know. It was like yeah, single, unilateral. Single, yeah. yeah. I only had one cleft in my lip, but tell us about growing up with that kind of condition. How many surgeries did you have and what was that part of your childhood like? It's funny. I, I didn't really keep a, a tally of how many procedures I've had, but I've had a lot. I mean, I think the youngest or the first procedure I had was when I was three months old. And I think that's when they closed the palate. And then obviously I've had subsequent revisions. And and for those people that know what cleft lips are like, um, you can't just repair everything in one go because uh-huh. as you grow and develop and your face changes and all of that, there's different stages of development and different stages of when they can actually perform various procedures. Otherwise, it looks funny by the time you grow up. I don't know how many surgeries I have had either. My mom might be able to count. I only know the ones that I can remember. Did you have to wear an obturator or like a speech appliance? You know, I was listening to your podcast about that and I was like going, hmm, a speech thing. Mm. I don't remember wearing a speech thing. I remember when I was in primary school, I had to, because my two front teeth were way back, like, and I needed to get braces in my two front teeth. So I had this plate like this brace on to try and push the two front teeth back out I don't remember wearing anything for speech and actually I don't think I went to a speech pathologist but I remember I did have have a lisp and I used to get teased so I used to practice at home (laughs) to try and get rid of the lisp (laughs) so that's what I that was my speech pathology (laughs) you did it on your own wow that's very independent I did it on my own I don't hear a lisp did you get rid of it I think so. Yeah, because yeah. my dad used to tease me, but it was he didn't do it maliciously. But because I was being, you know, in primary school and, you know, I was getting bullied and that at school. And then he'd make a joke if I said an S word that sounded really bad. Like I'd say the word snake and he'd go snake, snake uh, like that, uh-huh. like because that's how I used to say it. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, so then I'd practice in the mirror. <laughs> 
I used to sit there and and see how I could move my tongue and create the S without the lisp. Well, I wonder, maybe the whole of my palate was much bigger than yours. Maybe that's why. I don't know. Yeah. I I don't know. I do remember maybe occasionally, like if I spoke, there might have been a bit of whistling depending Uh on the word that I, vowel that I used. But I think over time, I don't know, obviously with surgeries, maybe things have closed up and it was okay. And in my case, as, as you heard on the podcast, it, I had this bulb in the back of my palate and they had to keep shaving it off. So I think that it must have been a, been a big hole. If I spoke without my operator when I was a kid, people couldn't understand me. I mean, it was that bad. Apparently yeah. my mom would always be able to understand me. I don't know how old I was when I got that, but of course I had a lot to say. <laughs> but she, but other people couldn't, you know, they couldn't understand me. So let's talk a little bit about the bullying that you experienced and the aftermath of that. Being the youngest of four, I was really excited to start school because I thought, oh, good, I get to play with kids my own age and, you know, all of that sort of thing. And, and so I remember my first day of school and I got to school and I was really excited. I was sitting in my class on the, on the carpet and looking around at all the kids and I was you're just scoping the room to see who's there and who you'd think would be a friend. And the first recollections is I remember seeing the girls would look at me, some of them would look away, some of them would make faces like, what are you looking at type thing and, you know, various body language. And so that's when I realised that, oh, maybe making friends isn't so simple. And, And that was the first time I started feeling really embarrassed about how I looked. Yeah, so that's what I remember initially. That was my first day of school. As that progressed, it became more of, you know, the boys used to sort of tease me a lot. They used to call me names like Fat Lip and Train Tracks um, on a day. That was my name. So they never called me Paula. It was more, hey, Fat Lip, you know, on this, this, this. Yeah, or what are you looking at? Train Tracks and, you know, stuff like that. So it was like a taunt. It was like a fun, fun thing for them. So that's when it kind of wasn't very nice. And and then they peppered it with playing games in the in the schoolyard where they'd run up and they'd kick me in the shins and run away. And so, yeah, that was my childhood experience growing up in primary school. And I remember uh, it was a year and a half into starting school, I decided to go tell my teacher of what was happening because, you know, you get to a point where you just, you want it to stop, you know, it was mm-hmm. just so emotionally, you know, physically and emotionally painful. And I remember that day, I was really scared to go see my teacher. I remember my my heart was jumping out of my chest because, you know, like you grow up, I, I don't know what it's like in America, but it's basically if you, if you dob or if you tell on people, it's like, it's not, a, it's not the appropriate thing to do. So, uh-huh. they, you know, they used to have a phrase when I was growing up saying dobbers wear nappies, you know, sort of thing, or diapers in America. Uh-huh. So, okay, well, that's all I needed to be teased for how I looked and then being told that I'm, that I wear nappies as well. <laughs> right. um, so it was a big thing, but I remember I went in and to, to talk to my teacher and I told her, you know, what was going on. And instead of getting the support and the nurturing and protection that I was looking for she pointed at the door and yelled at me and said go away don't tell tattletales like it was really oh, yeah and horrible yeah I, I was basically I froze I remember that and I was six years old I was six oh years my old God. yeah and I still remember that I still that remember is horrible yeah oh my it was gosh awful. yeah so I I walked away. I remember I left the room. I, I felt my body temperature rise. I felt embarrassed. I felt ashamed. I felt like I'd done the wrong thing. And I felt like it was my fault that I was getting teased. Not that I knew at the time, but reflecting back as an adult and 
I think that was the icing on the cake for me that made me realise that, you know, I was less than everyone else, that my mm. feelings didn't count and those in authority turned a blind eye. Mm. So they, they were the beliefs I grew up with. And it, it's funny when I think about it, when you're working in in an office environment and, and you see things and, or whatever, it's like those beliefs really hold, hold on to you, you know. You're kind of like going, no, I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to say anything because I don't want it to come back on me. So it's those types of beliefs that we carry from our childhood that if we don't address them or if we don't find a way to heal and improve upon it can really repeat on us. Totally. Yeah. Did your parents know what was going on? Yeah, yeah. Um, look, my parents knew what was going on. My parents are first generation, well, actually, they're migrants from Europe. Mm-hmm. So they came to Australia in the 1950s. So that's another another layer there because they are from the silent generation. They lived through the World War II. And so obviously, they have a mindset of, you know, scarcity mindset and everything's really sort of hard. They came to a, a country for growth and prosperity, came to Australia. Um, they were, you know, non-English speaking as well. Obviously, by the time I came around, they could speak English, but still, they did go to the principal at one stage to tell them about the bullying and all that, which obviously, um, the teacher tried to, again, I remember that, they, the teachers paraded me up out of the front of the class, told me to drop my socks so she could show all the kids all my bruises on my legs. Again, she was like yelling and being aggressive with the mm-hmm. whole thing. So again, I felt like I was being shamed in front of the class. So to me, it didn't feel like they were there to help me. It was mm-hmm. like parading me in front and saying, look at this, look at this, you know. And to be honest, the, the boys just found other ways to bully me without mm-hmm. being caught. Oh my gosh, that just sounds horrific. I don't feel like I experienced bullying until I was in junior high. Yeah, I don't remember that in grade school really at all. In junior high, as much as it was horrible, it's horrible at any age, but I can't imagine starting school and having all this happen to you right away before you actually had made friends and had some positive things. That's just so sad. So I did have a best friend in primary school growing up and we're still friends today. So we've been friends for probably 40 years. So oh, that's it's nice. really Yeah, so it's really good. So it wasn't always negative, but I guess if we're talking about bullying, yeah, a lot of it was done during primary school years for me. So I had seven years of dealing with that. I wish I had the tools to stand up to the bullies because I grew up with, and I grew up a Catholic background as well. So, you know, we kind of grew up with turn the other cheek. You know, Mm -hmm. if if somebody hits you on the cheek, turn the other cheek and let them hit you there. And I think it was very passive. Like it was a very passive sort of approach. And they, they were the things I was taught to sort of, you know, sticks and stones and all that sort of stuff. And I think I wished looking back that I was given better tools to cope with bullies, like, you know, to be more proactive and more assertive and not sitting, feeling like I'm a victim and feeling like it was out of my control that I couldn't do anything about it because even adults couldn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So that was the thing I wish I knew back then. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that the extra challenge is for immigrant parents because like, for example, I, I had a coworker a few years ago who also had a cleft she didn't have a cleft lip. She had a cleft palate and her parents were Chinese and they didn't speak very much English. So, you know, here in the US, you have to pay a fortune for medical care, right? But my parents, they didn't have a lot of money either, but they knew how to advocate for me. So they were able mm. to get low cost care. All of my care was either low or no cost through, through the medical school here. But her parents didn't know anything about how to get her help. So she didn't actually have her palate fixed 
until she was, I know. So she was wearing an obturator as an adult and she actually had the surgery to fix it, which I had when I was 15 called a pharyngeal flap. You may have had that when you were younger. I don't know. And she had that as an adult and it did not work and it just caused more problems. And so it was all because she had these immigrant parents who didn't speak English Mm -hmm. that were not able to advocate for her. Not that that was the case with your parents around health, but it does make it more complicated when you have immigrant yeah. parents. Yeah. yeah. And it's hard because at that time in Australia, like my parents came in the 1950s and back then they still had the white Australia policy and you had to assimilate and you had to, you know, basically fit in, you know, all that sort of stuff. And they found it hard. I mean, dad being an immigrant and coming in the workforce and a lot of people that were in sort of senior positions were either English or Australian. So I think the fear my parents had was that because they were born normal and they came to a country where they were still sort of segregated because even when they became Australian citizens, they were still called new Australians. You know, there was still a segregation, you know, like that's how it was, you know, what happens is, so for those that are listening, you know, a lot of our parental beliefs are superimposed onto our lives because our parents do the best they can with what they've got at the time. Mm -hmm. And so as we're growing up, we're told certain things because they've experienced things. So my dad always had a mantra of life wasn't meant to be easy and money doesn't grow on trees because that was his truth. That was his reality, right? That's what he experienced. So, So anytime things were difficult, you know, he'd turn around and he'd say to me, well, you know, life wasn't meant to be easy. You know, like in other words, suck it up. You know, that's life. You can't change the situation. That's like a fixed mindset there already, you know. And so if you don't know any better, then you kind of come to believe that and you go. And as kids, we have no filters in our brain. So whatever we're experiencing, it becomes our truth. It becomes our reality. We don't have the cognitive function as adults to be able to discern whether what we're experiencing is real, like is right or wrong. It's all just like, oh, and then we end up internalizing it as it's our fault that this has happened. I'm a bad person. I'm not good enough, you know, as opposed to, well, now actually that situation was wrong. The teacher should have said something. Teacher Mm -hmm. should have done something. Who knows? That that incident that happened with me with the um the teacher where she shamed me, maybe she was having a bad day. Maybe you know, she was having marital problems, but just didn't want to deal with my issue. Or maybe she didn't know how to deal with the issue. So just kicked me out of the classroom. That's a yeah. very compassionate way for you to look at it. Yeah, but that's as an adult. <laughs> that's as an adult. Look, I know, I, I know. It's having the insight uh-huh. and being an adult and going, yeah, I know I've had bad days uh-huh. and I snap at people and stuff. You know, maybe being a teacher for her was not something she wanted to be. You know, you know, there's a lot of teachers that are disgruntled and have been in the game for such a long time and they can't stand it anymore and they take it out on the students. We don't, I yep. don't know her backstory. At the time, it didn't help me because it made me feel like it was my fault and that I shouldn't have even gone to see her. That's really sad. Where were your parents from? Where did they immigrate from? My dad was Russian background and mum, mum's Greek. Oh, right. Interesting. Yeah. So a bit of a mixture there. (laughs) Yeah. My husband's actually um, half Russian as well. Oh, cool. His mother was uh, full Russian and his father was Irish. What did they speak to each other? Oh, well, actually, uh, what happened was my dad technically was born in Moscow and they fled during the revolution. So Mm -hmm. he left when he was two years old and they ended up seeking refuge in Greece. And so dad grew up there and spoke the language. So that's where he met mum. 
<laughs> in the same wow, village. Wow, that's an yeah. interesting story. And then they got married and he came to Australia first to, to find work and buy a block of land and do all that sort of stuff. And two years later, mum came out when he was more established and yeah and built their life here yeah it wasn't easy yeah so there's a lot of different layers if you look at how things are so you went from after this bullying you Mm -hmm. went from being in the bottom of your classes to getting in the Mm -hmm. top 10 percent in the state for biology and music take us through that story yeah yes so what happened was that my parents put me into a private all girls catholic school in high school because they saw the the challenges I faced with the boys and they thought, well, you know, if they took me out and put me somewhere else, then I'd probably continue with the bullying again somewhere else. So that's why they didn't move me. So the only option they thought was, oh, maybe we'll put her in an all-girls school. So in a way, that was my salvation in some way. It took a while because because I'd fallen behind at school, not just with the bullying and, and feeling anxious every day and not taking in information, but also being pulled out of school because I had to have operations and recoveries and all of that or dental appointments and all that sort of thing. So it was kind of compounded. So I had a steep learning curve to not only keep up with what was going on at school academically, but also trying to relearn the concepts that I never really fully grasped in primary school. So that was mm. that was twofold. I think the thing that drove me as well, because because of those beliefs and of feeling like I wasn't good enough, and that kind of drove me to say, well, I wanted to be good enough. So that was my internal motivation to do the best I could academically. In a way, that bullying and that sort of taunting gave me a sense of purpose. And my parents really drummed in being migrants. um, They drummed in the importance of education. My dad used to say to me, education was power. For me, it's like it gives you choices. For me, it meant, well, if I get educated, maybe I won't get bullied. That was my logic because, oh, only people that are dumb, you know, because the kids used to say you were dumb, you're dumb, you're ugly, you know. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I can't change the way I look because obviously, as I said, it takes years to have different surgeries to, you know, to improve. But I thought, well, the thing I could change was my brain, my academic performance. That was something I could move the scale. So that was something I worked upon. And I think that was what kind of saved me in a way. (laughs) <laughs> wow. What kind of music do you do? Yeah, I used to play piano. Yeah, I picked that up when I was 11. So it was quite late um, to pick that up. But it was something I was really interested in because I used to play on this toy keyboard. I could hear a song and I used to be able to play the tune on the on the keyboard before I started learning to learning music properly. And so I really liked it. And so, yeah, my parents goes, okay, well, go give it a go. <laughs> Um, And they were, you know, parents want to, you know, they didn't have a lot of money, but they didn't want to throw something at me if I was going to lose interest. (laughs) But I didn't. I didn't. I actually um, wasn't too bad in it. I did well. I skipped a few grades as well in between. Music was also another form of therapy and escapism for me and something to also channel my my interest in because, again, that was something you can improve upon, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think in terms of resilience, you know, developing resilience was something like, you know, having that growth mindset to say, okay, well, what can I, what what do I have control over? Mm-hmm. What can I focus on? Instead of focusing on the negative, which is what we all tend to do, is I focus on something more positive mm-hmm. music. So you have a really fascinating career background as well. Can you tell us about <laughs> how you got to where you are now? Take us on the journey through your career. Oh gosh. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, interesting. I guess 
after, you know, after being in, in and out of hospitals for years and years and, I, you know, I always found the medical side of things very interesting, you know, very, very passionate about science and medicine and all of that. And I think I got to a point where I was like, no, I think I want to move into medical research. You know, I wanted that's, well, that was something I wanted to, to venture into because I was very curious about finding cures and working out why we are the way we are in, you know, medically and that sort of thing. And so I ended up getting into university and studying a medical science degree and I actually went all the way and, and graduated with a master's with honours. So not so dumb after all. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, so in my early career, it was, um, yeah, basically, yeah, science-focused, uh, medical research, you know, making a difference that way. And so I spent the, the next 20 years um, working my way, you know, started off working in Preclinical research, so working in a lab with animals and animal ex experimentation, realised that I didn't really enjoy it. I wanted to go work more with people, so I moved into the uh, hospital sectors and worked in, in research there and then discovered that the pharmaceutical industry had a lot of different layers. So it was a lot more than just selling drugs. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so they actually do have a research area as well. And I thought that's great. So I moved into the corporate space in, in medical research and worked my way up the corporate ladder into leadership roles where I project managed multi-million dollar projects across Asia Pacific, as well as um, managing teams as well. So I did find my sweet spot really enjoyed bringing out the best in people and making a difference that way and you know and I found developing leadership skills for me was like probably something I would have liked to have had it as a little girl as I mentioned like I wish I had certain tools when I was growing up and that was one of the things that was missing that was missing from my toolkit was leadership and to me leadership was like a code of ethics a code of conduct a way of doing things a way of seeing things and I really loved what leadership was able to empower me, to strengthen me, to be, to make me have a voice and not being afraid to be visible. That was what I loved about developing leadership. And then uh, about five years ago, I kind of decided, well, actually, I wanted to do more than just finding out the why of diseases. What about helping people? Like initially, I stepped out to working in executive coaching and, and helping new and emerging leaders in corporate, in particular women, because there was a lot of challenges that women face in the workplace. And it wasn't just me going through stuff. It was quite universal. But then I started piecing things together and I went back to that six-year-old self and that experience that I'd gone through. And I went, hang on a minute. If I could go back to my younger self, knowing what I know now with the skills and the tools and the resources that I have that I know that I've got within me, how would my life be different? I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that my life is not good. I think I have a great life and I have a lot of opportunities. But in terms of the mental anguish, the mental health issues, the mental the anxiety, the feelings of not good enough and how that has influenced the decisions I've made in my life, I decided to work with teenage girls to help them create leadership mindsets, so to set them up to be future ready. The name of my podcast is Finding Fertile Ground. And mm. I'm just curious about how, whether you feel like you found the fertile ground in your career. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. By, yeah. By yeah. Become, yeah. But decided to become a, a teenage resilient expert, cognitive scientist. Yeah, I think so. Because do you ever feel like sometimes you've got a ladder and you're climbing up the wrong wall? A lot of the motivation, I think, was people-pleasing, you know, wanting to do the right thing by my parents or what, what I think I should be doing. 
you know, and you don't question it. Get to a point where you want more or there's something missing or like, yeah, you've got everything. You've got the the house, the family, the car, you know, the money, the this, the that. And then you still go, yeah, but there's something missing. And that that was the thing that was missing. You know, when I have a have a coaching session with with some teenage girls, I leave enlightened. I feel, I feel like I'm over the moon. It's like fantastic. Oh, Such a great feeling. That's wonderful. <laughs> that does sound like fertile ground. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's like, so so energized. Like it's amazing. It's amazing. And the the thing, the reason why I pick teenage girls is because you need to work with individuals that have a sense of starting to develop their critical thinking and all of that, you know, you need them to be able to have a conversation to sort of develop the, you know, be vulnerable. And when you're about 14, 15 years old, that's when you're, you're starting to question your identity. You're starting to test it out. What kind of friends you hang around? What, what kind of clothes do you wear? What kind of social media are you following? You know, like it's all about figuring out who you are at that age and the brain continues developing. It doesn't mature until you hit 25. Technically, right. anyway, you might know people that are older that are still immature. But regardless, <laughs> right. scientifically speaking, the brain doesn't mature till you're 25. So there's really great opportunity there to be able to mold these girls and help them express themselves and be their authentic selves. Because at that age, they want to fit in. They want to belong. They want to be part of a tribe. And so they're doing anything in their power to fit in, which is losing who they are just to gain acceptance. And that's what where things can go wrong over time because as they grow up into adults, you keep doing the same thing. It's a pattern. Well, I'm happy for you that you've gotten to that point. So any kind of ongoing issues that you still deal with your cleft lip and palate, like any health issues? No, not really. No. That's, I mean, ideally, good. I'd like to make my teeth look better. But again, that can be done. It just costs money. <laughs> yeah. I know. You know, but, I had braces uh, for so long and I think yeah. that my teeth have relapsed right. over the years you know yeah I'm pretty happy yeah yeah good. no I don't have I don't have any issues um although I probably stopped my surgery when I was about 22 because mm-hmm. they at the time they were saying oh that's as good as it's going to get then 20 years had gone past and there were people around me you know obviously Botox and fillers and all sorts of the beauty industries just skyrocketed and things that didn't really sort of exist for the the simple person, the average person back then exists now for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I, it got me thinking and I thought, oh, I wonder, I wonder if anything's improved for a cleft. So I was in this parent not-for-profit group for cleft kids mm-hmm. and they were like little babies and toddlers and stuff. So I did a call out in there and I just messaged and I said, oh, does anyone know any good plastic surgeons for clefts for adults? And yeah, and then all these mums were saying, yeah, yeah. And they were posting pictures of their kids. And I was like, oh my God, look at that. You can't even tell they've got a scar. Like it was amazing. Wow. Like it was amazing, these photos. And I, and I was like, oh my God. So then three of them said this one particular plastic surgeon. So I thought, okay, all right, I'll, I'll book an appointment with her. And she was a female surgeon. So I'd never been to a female plastic surgeon. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll give it a crack and see what it was like. And I made the appointment, went to see her. I went in with the mindset of she'll look at me and say, no, there's nothing I can do. So that was my preparation going in. Mm-hmm. And she had a look at me and then she like goes, oh, yeah, I can do this. I can improve this. I can improve that, you know, all this stuff. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was shocked. I was stunned. And then I left. I had to do another two more consultations to be convinced to go down the path of surgery. Not that I didn't trust her or I didn't believe in her. It was I had to really dig down deep to go, okay, 
why am I doing this? Am I happy with how I look today? What if it looks worse? Mm-hmm. You know, what if what if things don't look the way I, you know, anticipate? So it was like trying to weigh, weigh up the risks and benefits to say, okay, well, why am I doing this? Is it just I just really needed to dig down? But it took me three consultations with her to actually decide to go ahead with surgery. And yeah, I don't regret it. I think she's, you know, she's done some little improvements which have made significant difference. That's great. So that was that when you were 22 or was that more recently? No, more recently, about a couple of years ago. Really? Wow. (laughs) Gosh, I've never thought about looking into more surgery. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I think I think most predominantly because my profile is a lot more higher now in Australia and I'm in the media and you know, I'm talking to kids. Not that I looked horrific or anything beforehand, but mm-hmm. I want to be the poster child for clefts in Australia. Like, you know, we're not freaky. We mm-hmm. don't look disfigured. We actually do look normal. Like, I, I think I fairly look pretty normal. Like, maybe you might see a little bit of scarring, but I'm like everyone else. I think that's a really good message to show to show teenage kids, especially girls who are concerned about how they look their self-image, looking at themselves on social media, comparing themselves to their friends and to and to influencers who use filters on Instagram mm-hmm. and all of that and think that they're not good enough, that they're ugly. Well, I can stand in front of them and, and show them pictures of what I looked like as a little girl and how I look like now and the challenges I faced growing up with bullying and not fitting in, which is I get it. I feel their pain. And it resonates so much with them, even though, you know, I wasn't born normal. But it's putting it out there. It's showing them that, yeah, you girls were born normal. Like these girls I work I work with, they're beautiful. They're inside and out. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. There's nothing wrong with them. But yet they feel the same way I do. Right. Like, exactly. please. I know. I know. <laughs> oh my You've God. got everything going for you. Yeah. How do you feel about your appearance now? Do you still have a lot of doubts about yourself? Or are you feeling pretty good about it? Yeah. I've got no issues with my face. The thing that I've got issues with is I've put on a lot of weight on co- during COVID. So for me, for me, how I look at myself is I'm so fat because oh. I need to lose some weight. Oh, no. So it's, it's not my face. It's not your face, yeah. No, yeah. it's like, oh, the rest of me. But then also working in medical research, it's like, yeah, it's not just looking fat. It's like the health ramifications that I could potentially have because uh-huh. being a lot bigger than what I should be. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? So then I think, oh, no, I don't want to get type 2 diabetes. I don't want blood pressure. Right, I don't want right. this. I don't want that or uh, cholesterol. Oh I'm gosh. like, so I think of all these things. It's not just the external appearance. Although, uh-huh. yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> I think for me, I'm probably more critical of my nose than my scar because my nose is sort of misshapen. I think that a number of people on the Facebook group have talked about that. So I'm critical of that. <laughs> more yes. Than yeah, I know. There's bits and pieces where I sort of sit there and I'm like, yeah, I remember when I was having my re-surgeries again with this new surgeon and you have this vision, you have this vision of what you think it's going to look like, you know, because mm-hmm. she'll say to you, we can improve this and we can do this and she'll draw pictures and you go, oh yeah. Then you walk away thinking, oh, it's going to look so good. Like I'm going to look normal and all this and perfect. And and then after things heal and you go, Oh, was that it? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> was that it? And it does. It's just, and I remember like as a little girl, I 
went through the same feeling. I remember I used to see my surgeon like maybe once a year, I'd go for a checkup. And some years he'd look at me and he'd say, yeah, I'll see you in 12 months. And then I'd leave depressed because it was like, oh, you mean I've got to stay looking like this for another uh, year, yeah. another year, and then right. another teasing. Yeah, that was my disappointment. And then when he booked me in for surgery, I was like so excited, like, oh, great, they're going to fix me. I'm going to be mm-hmm. normal. And But no, because there were different stages and you can never reach that normality that you were hoping for. Right. Exactly. I don't, yeah. I think that I must've been pretty young when I had my last cleft lip surgery because I don't really remember that part, but I had jaw surgeries, which were oh. related, you know, they were all related. Yeah. I think it must've been when I was pretty young. I don't have a recollection of it. It's more of a palette that was working on a lot more for me. Yeah. So what would you say you have learned from having a cleft lip and palate? Like what are your life lessons from from going through that experience? And what would you tell your childhood self if you got the chance? I think being born with a cleft gives you that sense of resilience because you can't change things overnight. You know what I mean? You've got to learn to accept the things that you can control and accept the things you can't control. I think one of the advantages of being born with a cleft also is, yeah, we've gone through a lot of adversity, not just, you know, not just physically, but emotionally as well. And it's how we choose to live our lives. My motto is, and I say it in my business, it's not how you start off in life that counts, it's how you choose to live it. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's like be you, have courage and live life without limits. And they're my values, they're my business values and they're my core values. And they're the things I, I tell my my students and also my younger self. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you have also written a book. Can you tell us about your book? So yes, yeah, so I've written the book. It's called The Limited Edition Leader, Create Confidence to Conquer Life. And I wrote the book specifically for Generation X mums of teenage girls. It's a really cool book in the sense that I share anecdotal experiences of myself, of some of the things we discussed today and other points of my life, but I've also peppered it with um, insights uh, using science and um, psychology. So instead of like doing, you know, maybe you might read a book on a psychologist and they'll be talking about all the facts and the stats and all that, or you might be reading a personal development book where somebody's sharing everything about their personal insights. So what I've done is I've merged the two together. So it gives you that sort of interesting flavor of, okay, giving you some science and context about creating confidence to conquer life, but also, you know, ways in which how I've overcome things to create confidence to conquer life. And I find that it resonates quite well with the teenage girls as well. Congratulations. And can you think about something that you have read or watched recently that has inspired you? I did watch this Netflix show. It was called Self Made. Yeah, Madam CJ Walker. Yes, she's great. Oh, man. I think I watched that series twice because it shows an inspiration at a time where an African-American lady in the early 1900s, right, came from nothing, so creative and entrepreneurial-like. And despite all the obstacles that she faced, you know, the competition or her husband doing things or people putting her down and a lot of setbacks, it never stopped her. She Mm -hmm. just kept getting new ideas and going, you know, and visualising things. And, And it got me inspired because I think if people like that can do something with their lives and make something happen from nothing, then what opportunities do we have? And that's why I sort of instill a lot into, for me, I get inspired by role models. Who's out there? Who's done something? 
how did they overcome the the challenges to to get to where they are? I think a lot of people have the misconception, especially when they see see people on social media, and they think all of a sudden this person's rich and famous, or they just for some reason, and they don't realize it might have taken that person ten years to get to where they are. Right. You know, right. and they think, oh, they think, oh, no, if it's not happening like overnight, then I'm a failure. Mm-hmm. I'm not good enough. You know, and again, that's about resilience as well. It's understanding that you want something good in life. You've got to work hard for it, but you also need to pivot as well. You need to be flexible in how you get there, but also never lose sight of the end game. Yeah. I talked about Madam CJ Walker with a recent podcast guest on my other podcast. Ah, She's a a woman from Marietta, Georgia, a black woman from Marietta, Georgia. Uh, And she has a company called The Wig Doctor, where she actually provides wigs for people who have lost their hair from health conditions. We were talking about that show and how it was such an inspiration for entrepreneurs, especially related to hair. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Whenever I felt down in my business, I, I watched it. (laughs) Yeah, I think I should watch it again. I might watch it again. I mean, yeah, yeah, she was so confident and full of spit and vinegar. And yeah, I thought it was great. Thanks for that inspiration. So (laughs) is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? I think my mom, because, you know, she grew up in a time where she was the oldest of five kids. And she grew up during World War II. So she only had an education up to year one, grade one. Mm. Okay. Yep. And then by the time the war was over, uh, that was it. But she was basically raised to be a homemaker. Okay. So being a girl as well. So I don't think education was that important in the family. Mm -hmm. Um, But being a good homemaker, a housewife and mother was. And so, you know, she had to overcome a lot of adversity. When she married my dad and she had to relocate to Australia. She didn't realize how far Australia was from Greece. Oh, you know, really? She, yeah, oh she didn't God. know because, you know, at the time they came by ship. So it took a month to oh travel from God. Greece to Australia yeah. on a ship. On a ship. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Because she used to think, oh, it's okay. I'll be able to go back and visit anytime. But right. in those days, oh. no, you couldn't. It was so expensive. It was only for rich people to fly back. Oh, yeah. You know, so it was very. It was hard. It was hard that, you know, she left, I think she was um, 20 or 22 and came to Australia. And again, no social media in those days. So, you didn't, you didn't know where you were landing. So, when she came to the town of Wollongong, at that, that point in time, dad had only built a one-room house. So, it wasn't like a very big house. It was just a weatherboard fibro house. And so, she, she came to Australia. She, she remembered when she stepped out of the car, she lost a shoe in the mud. Like she oh stepped right in the mud, oh and when she pulled the foot out, the shoe was gone. Like oh. it was never, never to be found again. Oh so she my told me God. that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so you know, she was like many migrants. There was a lot of migrants in the street from all different places of Europe. So yeah, she had to learn to be a wife and a mother by herself. She didn't have her mum down the road to sort of support or family or cousins or aunties or no one. So she did it all on her own. By the time I came around in her life, you know, she was the best mother. I wouldn't have had the patience like she had and the tolerance Mm to have a child like myself. It's not easy. It's not easy having a child that's normal, but not one that has special needs like a cleft. Mm -hmm, Right. Um, You know, and the adversities. And imagine as a parent in those days, and people coming over to see your baby and your baby doesn't look normal and they're kind of maybe saying stuff behind your back. Who knows? You know, the right. 
stuff, right? The judgments. Right. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows what yeah. mothers went through? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's hard enough these days that, you know, I've got friends that go to mother's groups or, you know, or stop going to mother's groups because all they do is just they compete with each other right. and they compare and they go, oh, right. little Johnny's running now, you know, and this, this, this. And yeah, I can imagine what it was like back then. Mm, right. Oh my gosh. Is your mother still alive? No, she passed away uh, 2009, but oh, so she was sorry. my best friend. She was my best friend. Yeah, we had a really had a really good relationship. And I think being born as a special needs, it makes you closer because you go yeah. through a lot. You go through a right. lot. Right. Like I remember these going to doctor's appointments all the time, for example. Mm. You know, I remember going with my mom and I have really special memories of that. Did she ever get to go back to Greece? She did a few times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The last time was in 1996. Mm. So she got, that was the last time. And then when she came back, yeah, she had heart issues. So after that, it kind of was not good. Yeah. So uh, she went, yeah. So she didn't really travel back there again. What was her name? Catherine. Catherine. So yeah. my final question is, what would you advise others who want to find their fertile ground in their career path like you have done? Think about all the jobs that you've had and, and what mm. would you pass on to other people that are trying to find that kind of excitement that you get right now when you work with teenage girls? I think the key is to follow your heart. Find something you're passionate about, but also find something that you're going to get paid for as well. Because, you know, you can't survive and live on passion alone. <laughs> right. Um, right. Right. That's what we all do. Because um, generally what happens is we follow security. We follow, you know, we do something that, you know, that's mainstream that people think is expected of us that we should be doing. So that, that would be my advice is find something that you're passionate about that gets you excited to get up in the morning and also something that's going to, you know, you'll get paid to do as well. That would be my advice. Yeah, nice. Okay, well, those are all my questions. Do you have anything else you'd like to say to our listeners? The only thing I need to say is, you know, go out there, be you, have courage and live life without limits. Wonderful. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much for your time, Paula. Thanks, Marie. It's really great what you're doing. Fantastic to talk to you. It's been really great hearing your story. Good luck to you. Thank you. You too. I hope you were inspired by Paula's story like I was. Next week on the Companies That Care podcast, I interview Heather Younger, a best-selling author, international speaker, consultant, adjunct organizational leadership professor, and facilitator who has earned her reputation as the employee whisperer. If you're inspired by this episode or any others, or have an idea for a guest or topic I should cover, drop me a line at marie at fertilegroundcommunications.com. I love to hear from listeners. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and leave a review.